HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. Look for their newest line, Pristine, the only complete line of pet food made with responsibly sourced ingredients. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to The Line here on Heritage Radio. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, co-owner of Samista Restaurant in Williamsburg and the soon-to-be-open Wilda's Restaurant in downtown Detroit, Michigan. Every week on The Line, I welcome a guest to discuss the trajectory of their life and food and what choices they've made along the way. Today, my guest is Akhtar Nawab. He's the chef and owner of Alta Calidad in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn. He's also a partner in the Mexican street food concept Choza Taqueria, which has multiple locations. He's also a partner in Indie Fresh, a fast casual concept with two Manhattan locations. And most recently, Nawab opened a modern Italian restaurant in downtown Birmingham, Alabama called Faro. Today, we'll be talking about balancing very busy schedules, running multiple concepts, his early days working with Tom Colicchio in New York, and the ups and downs of being a restaurant owner in New York City. Chef, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. So you grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. Right, Louisville. Louisville. Yeah. Were you born there? No, I was born in Milwaukee. And... How did your family end up in Milwaukee, and then what brought them to Louisville? Yeah, talk about trajectory. So, I don't know. I don't know how to plot this any any linear way. Uh, uh, my my father and mother came from India. Um, they ended up at, in Milwaukee. I was born there. Uh, he was doing a residency program. Went to Indiana from there. Um, he was also doing some, some fellowship stuff and things like that and then ended up in Louisville, Kentucky. So I ended up, I ended up, uh, growing up for the better part of my life in Louisville. How was that being an Indian family in Louisville, Kentucky a couple, couple years ago (laughs) when you were growing up there? I know. Um, you know, it's a, it was a great place to grow up. I still, I still love going home. I still have friends there. Um, I consider it home, even though I've been here for so long. Um, but it was it was definitely different. You know, I was one of two to three 
Indian families in kind of the immediate area. Um, Louisville's always been a little bit more liberal, I think, than the rest of Kentucky. Um, um, however, it, it, it was definitely, like, it was noticeable, you know. Did your family face racism? Was there, like, a palpable <clears throat> difference when you went to, to school where kids... Was it like we're young kids and we're just friends, or was it was everyone well, quite aware of the fact that you were a young Indian boy living in Kentucky? Right. So I think the area that we grew up and the particular friends that I had in the school that I went to, I really didn't um, feel as though I was uh, I wasn't an outcast in any way. I was very welcome. Um, but I will say, you know, I, I did have my fair share of you know kind of racism to, that I dealt with growing up. Here and there, obviously, the times that I weren't at school, other schools, I played active soccer for many years. Um, so it, it was definitely noticeable. I was aware of it for sure. Um, it was an interesting time because that was a, there was a time in the United States and, and Louisville in particular, there was a very important medical community in Louisville. So my father was one of these elite um, kind of members of that community and um, the United States was actually looking outside for doctors at that time. And that's actually when kind of the period where my father came here. And so what kind of doctor was he? Was he working at the university as in Louisville or at the, at a hospital there? Yeah. You know, he, he did, he did some work with another doctor for many, many years and then he branched off and created his own practice. So he was in private practice. Mm -hmm. Um, he was a cardiovascular physician. Um, and he did that for many years and then he retired uh, some time ago, and he was so unbearable to be around, we forced him to go back to work. <laughs> and uh, and growing up, your mom did a lot of the cooking, and you were helping out. I, I saw that. So yeah. your first experiences in the kitchen, working with your mom, cooking what for the family? You know, it was always Indian food. Always, mm-hmm. always. You know, she came from a region of India um, that was one of the few Muslim cities in India. Um, there aren't that many of them, but Lucknow is one of them. And my family has a very long history um, there in particular. Um, so she she kind of cooks her version of that authentic food, uh, and that's kind of what I grew up on. What are some of those uh, dishes, spices, flavors that come right. from that region? So that particular region is, is known for classic rich food. You know what I mean? So there's, it's like, it's got meats, it's got a lot of meats, you know what I mean? It's like rich sauces, heavy, heavy kind of rice dishes, you know what I mean? So biryani is important, you know, kima was important. Um, you can find these kind of similarities throughout any Persian influence kind of across the Middle East, you know, all of Mediterranean, all that stuff. But some of those spices were things like, you know, cardamom, you know, sweet spices like cardamom, cinnamon, cloves, you know, then saffron, and then earthy things like cumin and black cumin, which is like so different and unique. Um, and, um, you know, like coriander seed, you know, and then some other more familiar things, but in, in kind of tandem, they work so surprisingly so we're, well together. We're talking about very rich, aromatic sort of stews, probably over rice. Often, Often served with or an accompaniment of. How does that sort of gel or not gel with food in Kentucky? I'm honestly yep. not really familiar with what would be considered 
authentic Kentucky cuisine. It's sort of in that weird geographical location in the United right. States where it's like almost the South and almost the Midwest. And I right. guess when you drive through the state, how does that, that change? So is there Kentucky food that well, exists? Yeah, our greatest contribution is called Derby Pie. Okay. Right? That's our greatest contribution, <laughs> which is like bourbon and chocolate pecan pie, except it's got walnuts. But, um, you know, we, we th- you know there's, there's a lot of fried stuff. You know, there's, you mm-hmm. know, it does have... You know, like spoon bread and biscuits are still important there. Um, things things like that, grits are still important there. Um, slightly heavier stuff, I think. But I think these days there are a ton of farms. There are chefs down there who are doing really cool, interesting things. When you were growing up, did you pretty much only eat at home? Or was it Indian at home, but then did you go to McDonald's? Did you hit, like, n- normal kind of traditional, like, Applebee's once a week right. when you were... Uh, we pretty, you know, for for many, many years, you know, before my dad had kind of amassed anything, you know, he was working, you know, so we ate at home exclusively, you know, for, for many, many years. And I think as he started doing a little better in his career and earning a little more, we'd go out occasionally, but, you know... It was fun to go out and see other stuff, but the truth is, is like that stuff had such little flavor to what I was compared, you know, growing up on that I was just like, it's it's great, and I, you know, I love pasta, I love all this other stuff, but it's not, you know, I'm. It's like these days, like it needs to have a chili or it needs to have something like all this Mexican influence. Like it's so it's so important for me to have something happening like that. I want to know about your first true job at, is it Ditto's Bar and <laughs> Grill? Um, well, it was actually Domino's delivering okay. pizzas when I decided not to go back to college. But um, Ditto's Bar and Grill was my first real restaurant job. And what was that place like? And did you, was it just based out of necessity? Or was there any part of you that thought, oh, I'm kind of interested in what's going on here? Initially, <clears throat> purely based out of necessity initially. I had no idea what I wanted to do. You know, like I was playing bass guitar and, and that's kind of what I wanted to do um, was was pursue that as much as I could. And, you know, now when I play, I was like, oh, I was pretty good back then. <laughs> um, I, that's what I wanted to do, you know, and uh, I, I, I ended up working there for four years, you know, for a long time. So, you know, the, the, the chef there, the chefs, there was a chef-driven family restaurant. These guys were, like, classically trained in, in the very old world with velouté's and, you know, those kinds of heavy French things, you know. Yeah. Um, and they applied their kind of twist on those things to this family-style restaurant. Um, it isn't necessarily food that I would look back on and say, wow, that was remarkable. Um, I would look back on it and say, wow, that was a great experience. It got me comfortable running around a very busy kitchen. And we both know kitchen movements are different than kind of anything else. Um, It got me comfortable, you know, handling a huge volume of people. And the demand when someone is like, I need this right now. Like, it's it's a lot of pressure. Um, A lot of people don't realize how to manage that. So that was good for me. I'm curious what your parents were thinking your father as a as a medical professional who obviously went to yeah. traditional school right. and then you say school isn't for me i'm maybe going to be a bass guitarist and then you start working in the food profession right. what what did they feel when you were dis- making the decision to move to san francisco and go to culinary school right um <clears throat> he, he was so disappointed and he was so 
beyond mad. You know, he was furious. But I think he didn't know how to process it at all. Um, he, he didn't support in any way at that time. You know, like he, anything he could do to remove me from that part of the, his, his mind was like, that's what he wanted, you know. Was there any part of you that <clears throat> did you? Was there hesitation because it had angered your father so much? Was was there a an appeal in the fact that you were doing something that wasn't what had was traditionally expected of you, or was there like any amount of uh, trepidation in doing it because you thought, well, maybe my parents aren't really going to like be behind me anymore? No, not not at all. You know, like I, you know, like I was never the the son that had excellent grades. I was never the one to, to, um, uh, do, I think what was expected kind of day to day. Like I always, I always had something a little different than kind of the rest of the, the bigger family, um, as far as interests go. Um, but I was, I was clear that that's what I wanted to try to do. And, you know, if it didn't work out, you know, I'd try to find something else to do, but I was pretty confident that I could be good at this, you know? So you moved to San Francisco to pursue culinary school, and then uh, you end up staying and working there. Right. And uh, I'm curious about your culinary experience, and also how did you connect with uh, Loretta Keller? Um, <clears throat> so at the at that time, I think San Francisco was kind of doing some of the more interesting things because Alice Water had produced so many uh, Alice Waters had produced so many chefs and cooks that were kind of going off and doing their own things. And she had created a cuisine at the time that I think everyone was looking to, and they branded it California cuisine, uh, largely due to her, you know. Um, and I, I appreciated that. And I was like, you know, I'm going to go out there. I could have gone to Johnson Wales or, you know, whatever the other schools were, you know, California Institute sure. of America. Um, and I could have gone and tried to approach that. However, um, it it was more interesting to get further away, you know what I mean? And have less connection in some ways. Uh, so I could focus more on what I wanted to do. Um, and I think that was important to me, you know, um, what, what are those moments like when you arrive in San Francisco? Do you feel like you're in the right space for the no. right time? Do you feel really out of water? Uh, uh, completely out of water. hundred uh -huh. percent. You know, I didn't, I didn't know anyone there. Uh, I had a, I had a tiny bit of extended family that was a couple hours away, um, but yeah, I was I was felt like wow I'm a, I was fairly young I was twenty three I was like new place, um, very little cash you know, and uh, I was like okay I'm gonna go to school so I showed up at school and then I kind of got to school and I was like I I gotta go find a job like this I'm not gonna be able to make it out here like this you know um, with whatever I had saved. Um, so, so where do you end up? So, you know, I went out to a lunch, at, you know, kind of when I was going to school at night at that time. So I, I went out to kind of lunch wherever I could, check out some stuff. I know where to go. Um, there was a handful of places that were kind of on the map. They wouldn't take a culinary student that had to check out at, you know, 2.30. Um, so there was no option to go work at some of those places. So I took a job at like this hotel place. It was called Roti at the time. Um, it lasted a few weeks, and I was like, this, this place isn't for me. I don't really like this food. Um, and I left, and I, had, I happened to have lunch at this place called Bizou at the time. And it was, this, uh, French, it was a French bistro, very elegantly done. Um, and I went in for lunch, and I was like, fuck, this place is great. Excuse me, this other place is great. Um, and I went back in, and I asked her if I could have a job. And she automatically was like, I don't take students, you know. 
Um, and I kind of went back and I, you know, asked her again. And then she was like, why don't, you know, she had a very, uh, she, she could push you off with a look kind of thing. You know, it's like, come in tomorrow at seven, you know. So I, I came in tomorrow at seven. She was like, work with Javier. Javier is uh, someone who's worked for her still. He's been with her for almost 25 years or something like that. Um, and he was, he was a total animal, you know. I was like, I was great, you know. I was like, she was like, peel these artichokes. And that's really what it was, you know. She came over and I was peeling these artichokes. And she was like, keep up with this guy. And then I was like, looking at him, he's like, you know, three a minute. And I was like, <laughs> you know, it was like third artichoke ever peeled anyway. Or, or the Louisville style was eat the leaves anyway, you know what I mean? So uh-huh. um, I, w- I was just trying my best. And then, and then I, you know, I did a terrible job. And she's like, why don't you come in tomorrow at nine o'clock? Um, but I think the fact that I just stay there and did it, you just know, kept coming back. Yeah, just, she was just trying to see if you had maybe the integrity to yeah. work in her kitchen was really what it was. You know what I mean? Like she was a very, she would give someone who didn't have a lot of experience and opportunity as long as you wanted to be there. And as long as you tried your best, she would help you. And she was in the kitchen a lot back then. Um, so a real like teaching chef, she was there a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and that's part of the reason why it was so special. You know, um, I got great experience. I got my hands on the best California produce and ingredients I could have hoped for, you know, and she taught me how to use it, you know, so I was always grateful for that. When and why did you make the decision to come to Cross Coast? You know, I wanted to get to New York because kind of four years out there, I started reading more about Danielle and I started reading more about Gramercy Tavern and I started reading more about, um, you know, John George, you know, all those places. And to be honest, back then, like I say back then a lot because it's so different now, like, you know, cookbooks was how you learned about these places. You know, there was no, there's no other way to learn about this stuff, you know? So I go to the bookstore, you know, and I had a huge volume of books and, uh, you know, I'd read the Charlie Trotter cookbook. I was like, God, I got to go work there. Like, I got to see how to do this stuff. So on my way to New York, I started I started at Charlie Trotter's when he was out there, um, and and then I ended up in New York, and I was like, I got all these places I wanted to see. Um, I was working at the time in San Francisco at a place called La Folie, which is a four star French uh, place with a very intense environment, um, and I was like, I, I was very hooked on learning how to do that type of cuisine a little better, or, or a lot better. Um, and that's kind of what's, what got me, set me in motion. And then, uh, and so you come to Gramercy, it's your first trail. You don't trail anywhere else. How does that, you know, how does that work out? You know, did you just, right. did you know the first couple minutes I, or I, I, I got there and, and I, uh, the sous chef at the time was this guy, John, uh, Johnny, who, who, uh, um, kind of suited me up and he's like, stay out here for a little while. And then I was like standing in the tavern and he's like, come back to here for a little while. And I was like standing in the kitchen and I was like trying to figure out what, what was going on with this place. You know, like they had all these different things happening. You know, it's like, there's a whole restaurant in the front. There's a whole restaurant in the back. There's two different kitchens. There's a party going on in the back, you know, for like 28 people, not a small group, you know, like with its own private menu. And I was like, this is amazing. Like, as like, how, how does one person stand here and execute all this? You know, and the, uh, again, like at the time, Chef Colicchio was, was very present. Um, and I had never seen 
um, someone get that kind of personality onto the plate with that kind of volume. You know, like I was coming from like La Folie, which is, you know, very personal for the chef. But we do 60 covers a night. And obviously that was a huge volume for that little 40 seat place. But, you know, here we're doing 300 covers, you know. At a very high level. At a very high level. You know, high expectations. And the cooks were excellent, you know, back then. Like, the cooks were, were great, you know. So I, I really did. I, 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 I said, I want, I want to work here. Like, I want to work here. So many excellent people have, have worked there. Yeah. Do you feel like you were all attracted by the all the pieces, you know, Chef Calicchio, the room, uh, the, the location, like it has a lot of things going for mm-hmm. it. But at the, at the end of the day, like how do you think Gramercy has, why does it have the staying power that it has and how has it attracted such kind of like monumental talent over the years? Right. You know, I, at the time, I, you know, Tom Calicchio, like he had a big name in New York for sure, but it wasn't, it wasn't like a, a national name mm-hmm. at the time. He was, he was very well known here. Um, but I think that the fact that you're doing that kind of volume and no matter what happened, like you had to do it right. There was no send it out cause I need to, um, you had to do it right. And I think that it, it was very much like a waterfall situation where like this person worked here and then this person said, that guy's a great cook. I'm going to work here. And it really did work that way in a lot of ways. Like, you know, there were, guys from coming from the French Laundry, you know, when I was in San Francisco, which was a huge, a huge name out there, you know, and he was achieving massive uh, acclaim for what he was doing out there. Uh, you know, people were coming from the French Laundry, they're going there. It, it turned out Tom Calico used to work with or for, I'm not sure what, but uh, Tom Skeller um, here in New York. Um, and you had this, this, you know, group of people that um, wouldn't settle for something inferior going on to, to the station next to them. And so I used to work next to this girl, Juliet, uh, Juliet Pope, who, uh, oh, happy birthday, Juliet, I think it was yesterday. Uh, I used to work uh, next, to, next to her for kind of like all throughout my kitchen time there. And it's like, you know, this, this person would push me to do better every day. It's unusual to get that, you know, uh, and, and to have that, start from the top and end up down at the cooks doesn't happen often, you know, you, you did something which these days, a, a lot of people jump around. They stay somewhere six months, maybe a year. Occasionally they, they find a yeah. place that they can call home, but you worked with, uh, Tom yeah. across several properties for quite a while. You worked yeah. at Gramercy and then you were on the opening team of craft and yeah. craft bar. Right. Right. So, you spend a lot of time with him. What are some of the big takeaways of spending so much time in that organization, either specifically related to Tom or just in the general sense of things of being part of that operation as it, as it grew and expanded? What, what, right. what things did you learn? Um, you really, you know, Tom is, he, he's, he has a, a very kind of a authoritative way about him where, you know, it's like, what are you going to go do that for? stay here and learn this with me. And then, you know, you, you learn how to cook for sure. You know, he's an excellent cook. You know, you learn how to work in an environment and to work with other people, which he's very good at. Um, and then you learn, you learn the importance of building a team around you, which he was extremely successful in doing. Um, 
to this day, like, I mean, he's probably one of the most more successful team builders I've ever seen. And everyone stayed and worked with him. Very few people left until, um, you know, when I think when he started opening a lot of properties and I think other, other people said, I can go move on and do some other stuff. Um, I, I definitely, you know, you learn what food cost is, you know, you know, you learn uh, what labor cost is all about. And then he, he left me to run this kitchen um, and would pop in occasionally and say, what are you doing that for? Do it like this, you know. And he gave you a lot of latitude, I think, in, in uh, your creativity. He, he never stifled your creativity. He would only try to help you build on it. You know, and that was that was great. You know, that was great. You know, sometimes you're off base and you'd be like, oh, that's terrible. You know, like, and he ha- he says it like that. He just kind of very dismissive. Like, what are you doing that for? It's terrible. Um, so those were very important experiences for me. You know, like, uh, I, I, I always appreciate that part of him. We're going to take a quick break here on the line on Heritage. And when we come back, we're going to talk about you going out on your own and yep. with your first restaurant in 2008. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. You put a lot of care and thought into what you eat. After all, you're a food radio listener. That thoughtfulness goes hand in paw with how you feed your pets. Purposeful pet food doesn't happen by accident. Castor and Pollux scours the earth to carefully select the best organic and responsibly sourced ingredients. New Pristine from Castor and Pollux is the only complete line of pet food made with ingredients that are responsibly raised, caught, or grown. Feed your dog or cat the new standard, like grass-fed beef, wild-caught fish, and vegetables grown without synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides. Pristine from Castor and Pollux. Purposeful pet food. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org pets. Welcome back to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. My guest today is Akhtar Nawab. He's the chef and owner of Alta Kalidad in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn, as well as a partner in Fast Casual Concepts, Indie Fresh, and Choza Taqueria. He just opened a modern Italian restaurant in Birmingham, Alabama, called Faro. Chef Nawab was named a Star Chef's Rising Star Chef and has appeared on Iron Chef America. He worked extensively with Tom Colicchio at Gramercy Tavern, Craft, and Craft Bar, and he is also going to be opening up another restaurant in D.C. pretty soon. Right. So he's a very busy guy. Uh, I want to talk about your first project after you left the the Craft family. Right. You went out on your own in 2008. What project developed? Um, so I left, yeah, I left, uh, I get the dates confused. It's been so long, but, uh, yeah, I left craft bar after its second location had opened and I was you know, ready, ready to move on at that point. Um, I, I, I wanted to open my own place just like every young chef, you know, just want to open their own place. Um, so I kind of set that in motion and then I took a job at a place called the EU, which was a, a, a gastro pub 
in the East Village. It was kind of like the second in New York after the Spotted Pig. Um, they kind of got off to a rough start, and, and uh, I was able to kind of jump in there and do my stuff and still allow me a little bit of time to uh, work on my other project. I was a new parent at the time. Uh, Ella was only, I think, maybe one, six months, something like that. Um, and, then, and then that's kind of how I started the process of of working independently on my own. And so you open a restaurant. It's called Aletaria? Aletaria. Aletaria. And you opened it at an unfortunate time. Yeah. What what did I know? (laughs) Uh, You opened and then sort of the financial world that kind of exploded and the world, the world and the floor fell out beneath everyone. Uh, and that resulted in that restaurant having to close. I, you know, the, the important thing about what you said is that it fell out for everybody. You know, like I, at the time, I thought it was just me who was going through this. And I didn't really know how to kind of look around kind of the turn or take a step back and peer over. Um, yeah, we closed and it was a disaster. And, and a lot of great things happened years later. Um, but yeah, it was, it, was, it was a terrible time. I mean, obviously, in that situation, you do feel... Um, this is only happening to me and it's you're in yeah. your you're kind of insulated but yeah. uh now with several years to be able to look back what did you what did you really learn about that experience like right. you opened a restaurant you probably poured everything you had into it your heart your soul it was named after your daughter it was very yeah. special to you yeah. and then it closes what what do you take away from that and also how how do you come back from that feeling of right. of uh, of failure? Um, it, it took me a really long time to kind of get a perspective um, that it wasn't all my fault. You know, what I mean, like I blame myself, um, and I, I felt I felt so insecure. You know, like you know, sometimes I think that you know, chefs. They they put everything in this restaurant stuff. You know what I mean? Everything. And uh, I did that too. And, uh, you know, it was restaurant first and not, like, parent first at that time. Um, now I look back on it and it's like, I, I did have it mixed up, you know. But, you know, I did my best to, to uh, you know, I had a big home life change and, you know, I had uh, epiphany for myself, I guess, was it's not only this, you know, like there is more, you know, and I love what I do. I want to do it, you know, and I look forward to it every day now. Like there were years where I didn't want to do it anymore. You know, like I didn't know what else I should do or what I could do. You know, like I didn't go to school for anything else. This is what I chose to do. And this was the trap. Like I kind of put myself in not knowing it years ago, but I was like, you know what? It's not really a trap. It's more, you got to take a step back and see what am I best at? You know, like, Maybe I wasn't the best at ownership, you know, at that time. Maybe being an owner on that level, I wasn't ready for it, you know. Um, so I, I, took a, I took a lot of steps back, you know. Uh, I didn't work for six months. I just spent time with my daughter. Uh, I tried to build or at least refresh a relationship with her that she's probably too young to remember anyway, but I do, you know. And... Um, you know, we got very close, and I, I said I, I wouldn't let something like that happen again. And it, it was... I, when you move on from that project and you take the job at La Esquina, right. 
you end up working there for several years. Did you take that job to kind of learn organizational, logistical details that you wanted to then put into effect? Or did you just grab a good job that was available? I'm curious because you stayed there for quite a while. You stayed there for four years. Um, Were you, for you, was that in any way like I'm going back to school to to now I'm going to learn Right, how to do things, and then maybe so, go out on my own. What one of the most valuable things, valuable things I learned about myself was like I need to be doing something. I need to be learning. Like I didn't, I didn't choose to do this to sit in a chair and and not participate. You know, like I I I want to know more. Part of the reason why I own all these cookbooks at the you know is I I, I want to understand more. I want to learn more. You know. Being a student is one of the greatest things to me about being a cook. You know, it's like, there's, uh, you don't have to cook the chicken that way. You can do it this way. Or it's like, oh, shit, I didn't know you could do that, you know. Um, I, I think I, I was so burnt out on having three people prepare a dish or having to manage three people to get this puree on the plate, which is what it came down to, you know. It would like, you know, the guy would make the puree, three people would end up plating it, I would finish it and it would go out. And it was like, I, I need to do something different. Um, I don't want to do this. I got to do something different. Um, and the Mexican stuff kind of appeared. They they approached me through a mutual friend. And I, I went to those guys and I was very honest and I said, I don't know anything about this, like other than what my prep people make. You know, I don't know anything about this. Um, and they said, you don't need to. He's like... We'll, we'll handle all of that education part for you. Like, we need someone who can run this kitchen because it's a massive operation. They were doing, like, almost $9 million a year, which is a huge volume. Totally. Um, and I said, I can do that. But, like, you know, he was like, there's a lot of good people who work here, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, part of the reason why it was able to do it is because they have a, a crew. At the time, they had a crew that hadn't really changed over, and they didn't change the menu. You know, that wasn't their interest. Managing the volume was their interest. So I got in there. I never had to worry about it being busy or staffing the place. Instead, I just needed to make sure the food was getting prepared properly and it could go out. It gave me a lot of time to work with this set of ingredients that I had never seen before. I found it extremely inspiring. And I found that it was where I wanted to be kind of in, in... in this position, you know, so it got me comfortable working. Um, like the volume, what wasn't the big part for me, I kind of felt like I had done that volume stuff before. Um, it was more about understanding that there is, there is something else out there, you know, there's more out there. Um, and that's kind of, kind of what the coolest thing about La Esquina was got me comfortable with new set of ingredients. What's so cool is because you tried, uh, a project that, was a more traditional style restaurant. Yeah. A lot of forces came together and unfortunately it didn't happen. And mm-hmm. now you've come back with a tremendous force. You're not just back with a 40 seat restaurant. You seem to have decided that now you're ready to take on right. Right. multiple concepts at different price points in different cities. Uh, at what point ha- did you decide that you could really manage 
all these different kind of uh, food verticals that you're in now. Right. It's it's kind of mind-boggling to think about. It. I couldn't even figure out how many locations total are you involved in across your four right. projects. Um, <clears throat> you know, like, uh, first thing is I asked Ella, she's 11 now, so I asked her, I was like, I kind of want to open this restaurant in Brooklyn with my friend Michael. Um, and she said... What does that mean? I was like, listen, it means I'm not going to be around for a little bit at nighttime. You know, we'll still work it out, but it's going to be a little tough to get started. But she's like, I don't mind, Dad. Go ahead and do it. She's like, can I go there? And I was like, anytime you want, you know. So uh, once I kind of had her approval, uh, I felt as though I could do it, you know. And I had so much kind of energy built up from just doing these daytime things for a while and kind of for the first time having like a relationship, you know, that, that at the time, it's not anymore, but at the time was meaningful. Um, I just had this good feeling about, I was like, I don't care about reviews. I don't, I don't care if we get recognized for a bunch of different stuff. I want to go there and I want to cook. Um, things that I think are different and creative and things that, that guy could come in and eat and who's right there and something that you could come in and eat and say, that was great. Like totally different. Like this guy's got some Indian experience. He's using it to, to create this Mexican stuff. Um, it works together, not in a way of fusion, but it's harmonious and it's different and it's fun. And that, that felt, as though it was very empowering, you know? I want you to talk a little bit about the, just the management of your time and, you know, beyond running things by your daughter and, and making time for her, you've got several concepts. They're a little different. They all probably demand different parts of you. Mm -hmm. How have you been able to, how have you been able to interact with all your businesses in a way where you feel where you've gotten to a point where you feel comfortable that you're not at every single one, right. five, six, seven days a week. So I think, uh, it, it, you know, it all starts at home a little bit, you know, like, um, I, I do ask Ella for approval on some things, you know, because she's old enough now to get upset at me and, and tell me she's mad. So, um, I got to listen to that. I'm fortunate enough to have a co-parent that works with me and my challenging schedule. Um, once we figure all those pieces out, I think as though um, I, I see no limitations. You know what I mean? Like, why, why should I? You know, uh, I, I spend most of my time um, at Alta Calidad because it requires the most of me, and I get uh, a good level of satisfaction. Indie Fresh is a very personal project, you know, through my own health challenges, I guess, through the years that, you know, I was a very big kid when I was younger, you know, I, I didn't have, um, many boundaries, you know, in the younger ages. So, um, it's a very personal project. My business partner, Sham, um, has been a huge influence on my life. And, uh, he's, he's very, um, go get it kind of guy, you know? So we went after it with Indie Fresh and, uh, we created this gluten-free dairy-free concept out of nothing. And again, like I have no experience with that stuff, zero, but 
it started with, I go online and I print out, like, what is gluten-free, what are gluten-free grains? Like, what are those things? I didn't, I didn't know what they all were. You know, so it started out with, you know, let's, let's create something, you know, based around this idea. And we went out and sought, you know, all that stuff. And then, you know, uh, Chosa, uh, you know, Chosa requires the least of me, actually. Um, I have a couple of cooks who've worked for me for 10, 12 years at this point who, who run it day to day. There's no change in the menu there. Um, it's really built to scale more than anything. Um, and then, and then uh, you know, Faro is... Uh, this Italian-inspired concept, which, again, was the training I kind of had uh, growing up. So it comes very natural. We have a lot of North African influence in what we do down there. So to keep, to keep my palate interested, it has a lot of chilies and some other different flavors down there. Um, <clears throat> it's all handmade stuff, you know. Um, and then uh, Prather's, which is opening in D.C. Um, in, uh, uh, in January, February is uh, a little more of an American-influenced restaurant. We have a heavy, heavy Italian influence to it. Um, but it's going to be very clean, lots of vegetables. I think it's going to be fun, stuff that I want to eat. Um, and as far as time management goes, you know, like, it's never easy, you know. Like, I, I you know, I, I, just like everyone here in New York, I think, you know, you get 4,000 emails a day. You kind of got to pick and choose how, how you want to, approach it all. Uh, one of the lessons I got from Colicchio years ago, which is time management and building a team, you know, like it's really all about, I got Doug down in DC, I'm sorry, in Alabama, who worked for me at my restaurant in DC before we closed, our lease was up. I moved him down there, you know, he's wrecking it, it's just great cook, you know. I help him with some of the administrative stuff that he's not strongest with, but he's an excellent cook, and he's one of the hardest working kids I've I've worked with since I was a kid, you know. Uh, Dan is my my chef de cuisine in uh, D.C. and he used to work with me at EU and Elitaria. Uh, after Elitaria closed, he I sent him over to go work with Cruz at Lupa at the time, and then Cruz and him worked at Del Posto together, and now he's he got some he has his own family and he he's eager to he kind of do what I did like he he had a family. He couldn't work at night every day. He ended up taking a different kind of job until his kids are just a tiny bit older. And then I think he went to his he he went to his wife and said, "I'd like to do this with Octar if I can. You know, is it possible?" And so now she she kind of approved it also. And uh, now he's going to work with me in D.C. and I'm super excited. You know, it's going to be great. It seems like you have a a. a perspective and sort of a patience and a general calmness now, even with all these projects going on. And, uh, you even said like, when you don't know, you go and you, you look online and it's, it's sort of okay for you to say that you don't know everything, which isn't necessarily the perspective of some traditional chefs that like, you're supposed to just know everything. So knowing all those things about you that you've just told us over the course of this show, I'm curious, how would you describe your own leadership style now and how much of it has been like stuff that you've learned from other people over the years and how much of it are you just kind of learning still right now on the go? Um, I, I think there's a lot of self-education, you know, like I, uh, I'm doing, 
I don't know many people who do what I'm doing right now. You know, um, it's difficult to, to, to reach out and talk to, um, other cooks or chefs or something, uh, and try to get a perspective on it. You know, I don't, Loretta, you know, I check with her quite a bit because she's such a good business person. And, uh, I feel like she tends to make the right decision always. So I, I, I talk with her a lot. Um, I got a couple other friends who are heavily involved in the food world, but are not in the food world. You know, um, they have probably the best perspective, to be honest. Like this guy, Yakov, for example, like he's not in, he doesn't do what I do. He's not in this business. You know, he's, he's in tech, you know, but he's so involved in food and aware and he goes out to eat everywhere. He's got a, such a good perspective that isn't sided in any direction, you know. Um, so I, I talk with him quite a bit also. Um, with so many concepts, you've got a couple different cities that you have yeah. things going on in. Does anything keep you up at night? When your head hits the pillow, what are you dreaming about? Is there a, like a ticket machine sound in your head or it's, it's not it's not the food stuff it really isn't like that that i find fun and exciting and when i get to go to you know alabama i just like roll pasta you know, like i mean if i could do that every day and not do anything else i i certainly would i might check a box and you know like okay that's great you know there's there's the you know it isn't lost on me you know like the japanese person who makes the knives and spends his not his life making sure that this is perfect, you know. I I wish I could do that sometimes, you know what I mean? But I got a lot of people to employ, and that's probably the most important thing to me, uh, is that I'm an employer, you know, and these people rely on me, you know, Luis and Juan rely on me to make sure that they have jobs. You know, like, it's very important, you know. Like, I, I definitely take that as something that's critical, you know, and a duty I have like an unwritten oath to, to make sure these guys are taken care of these people, you know, Elizabeth, you know, all these people. Um, the stuff that keeps me up at night though is, you know, the partnerships, uh, the partnership stuff is, is the, the, the legal stuff, the, the contract stuff, like that stuff is what I have very little palate for, you know, like the issues, you know, um, that's the hard stuff for me. It's like, you know, having to read through this agreement that's 50 pages in a language that isn't when I speak, you know, like I don't speak that language, the legal language, and it is its own language, you know, but I read all these agreements myself and, you know, I do all that work myself and when it's time to get formalized, then we go get a lawyer and uh, it's, it's the worst. <laughs> it's the worst. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, I have a couple of people I work with that are good people. You know, Phil's great. I know I can trust him. And this guy Michael's great. I know I can trust him. Um, but it's just not. You know, it, it's every chef's weak spot. You know, is this side of the business stuff. Like you don't know this stuff. You know, you're not taught this stuff. Last question to get you out of here. A young cook that works for you, he or she says that they want to go out on their own and they're asking you for, they feel ready and you think they're, they're probably ready sure. too. You can give them one piece of advice before you send them on the way. What do you tell them? Do it, do it, do it for the right reason. Like, you know, don't do it 
you're ready to go out on your own. Like, you know, take it because you love this place or this job or you're creating something for yourself. You know, do it because, you know, make money the last reason. You know, like, I know it's critical. You know what I mean? But I do believe that the, those, you know, they're so important, you know, like sometimes the best jobs pay the least, you know. But it's important to get that job to get to wherever you're going to go. You know, Elatari is a good example for me. You know, like looking back on it, it was probably the worst job I could have taken. Um, but it led to the best things I think I have now. Chef, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing your story. It's been a pleasure. Uh, you have kind of too many restaurants for us to tell the listeners where yeah, to find them all. But where's Alta Calidad? Alta Calidad's in Brooklyn. Uh, it's in Prospect Heights on Vanderbilt and Dean Street. And I'm there a lot. You can find me there a lot. Cool. Thanks so much again. Everyone, thanks for listening. You can join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. for another episode of The Line here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.